Hi, it's Greg Dalton. I'd like to hear your comments on the show, topics we should cover, and guest suggestions. You can reach me at greg at climateone.org. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate disruption is in the headlines nearly every day, penetrating deeper into our personal lives. How do we process the meaning of that? I actually think what the climate crisis demands of us is holding to each other tighter and gripping faster in solidarity and love rather than in than, um, saying goodbye to each other in death or in emotional isolation. And in these uncertain times, how are we weighing the decision of whether or not to bring more children into the world? On the emotional side, I know I want to have children, I always want it, but on the rational side, I don't know. You know, maybe there's no answer, right answer to this ethical debate, but maybe just your certainty and your deep feeling that you are meant to mother in this way is enough to answer the question. How do we plan for the next generation to inherit a society destabilized by our addiction to fossil fuels? The climate crisis seems to be unfolding faster than ever, with catastrophic floods, winter wildfires, and last summer's killer heat. Climate disruption is here, growing more intrusive every day. How do we bear the weight of these stressors and process our fear for what is coming for us and our children? Author and climate activist Daniel Shirell wrestles with this intergenerational angst in his book, Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. A warning to listeners, the next few minutes include discussion of suicide. Shirell opens with the story of prominent civil rights lawyer David Buckle, who he says became a titan of composting in and around Brooklyn, sequestering tons of carbon every year. And then, out of the blue, Several years ago, um, he killed himself uh, by setting himself on fire in Prospect Park um, in the wee hours of the morning before most people were around. If you read his notes and his writings before he took his own life, um, which are scant, um, the sense you get is of a man who was increasingly despairing around climate change and cared about it passionately um, and was doing his little part by sequestering all this carbon and, and sort of a Herculean effort when it came to local composting and still saw that as a drop, a drop in the bucket. Um, suicide is a very difficult topic. And I, you know, there are many reasons that contribute to an individual's choice to take their own life. But the sense I got when I found out about his death was, first of all, um, in a sort of strange way, it gave voice to some of my own anguish about the climate crisis. Um, I would be lying if I said I hadn't considered it myself. You know, suicide is a political act. You know, in my most in my most despairing moments, when I felt like, my God, like what tactics are there left to us? Um, what what cards do we still have left on our sleeves? I, I had contemplated this thing, not seriously, never seriously, never actually making plans, but um, it has it was a thought that had crossed my mind as I sort of grappled desperately to figure out um, to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And your mother said, D- "Don't do it because you're you would only write." Your mother implored you not to do it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and my mother was deeply right, and she's a she's a wise and wonderful woman. Um, it's never something I would do, and I I don't. Um, I actually think what the climate crisis demands of us is holding to each other tighter and um, gripping faster in solidarity and love rather than in than um, saying goodbye to each other in death or in emotional isolation. So the first reaction to his death was like, oh my God, somebody's actually done it. You know, 
And the second reaction was, um, God, he must have been so lonely, you know. Um, and I'd felt that myself, you know, this feeling of real heaviness around the climate crisis and not seeing cultural avenues around me to process it and like climate grief um, still being a sort of illegible emotion <laughs> in the public sphere. Um, and we talked about this thing called climate change, which I never refer to by name in the book for very deliberate reasons. Um, it was often in the language of parts per million in the atmosphere or the IPCC reports or the COP conferences. Um, Throughout the book, you refer to climate disruption as the problem with a capital P, which reminds me of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, <laughs> you rarely use terms like climate change, climate emergency. You know, why did you make that choice to not use, I guess, the the technical language that climate change evokes? I think for a long time, I'd felt sort of dissatisfied with climate discourse in this country. Um, and when the phrase climate change was evoked, it was immediately shunted in, into this pigeonhole in my brain, as I think it is for many people, many lay people paying attention to this problem. That's like, um, it's the purview of scientists. It's a very bad current event, but it's hap sort of happening up there in the ether, in the headlines. Um, and it doesn't really have much to do with like how I'm tucking my kid into bed at night or um, how I'm thinking about caring for my aging grandparents. And by choosing never to name it in the book, I wanted desperately to break it out of its little narrow, quote unquote, environmentalist pigeonhole, um, as if it were just like one more issue on the long bucket list of issues alongside, you know, tax reform and saving the whales and, um, you know, lead poisoning in our pipes, um, but was in fact a massive forcing that was going to change everything about how the, we live on this planet drastically over the coming centuries. I wanted to be able to like grapple with the full magnitude of that. And I felt the phrase climate change was actually thinning in that way. And I also wanted to defamiliarize it for people in that old writerly ploy of making something that people think they knew and have sort of internalized already and put in a certain compartment in the, their brain, making it fresh again so that a real encounter and a real f spiritual and emotional and philosophical encounter can actually occur. Um, because at the end of the day, I don't actually think that what we usually refer to when we say the climate crisis, which is um, mounting uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, leading to a very sick planet. I'm not sure if that's the problem so much as a symptom. And it's a symptom of the very sort of blindered methods of thought and attention we apply to the world around us under late capitalism, in my opinion. Right. So, so the climate is a symptom rather than the cause of, of in, uh, we've talked on climate one, yeah, about the capitalism and some of the, the um, you know, individualistic and extraction, and even colonial mentalities that underlie a lot of that. You mentioned, uh, explain your resistance to the concept or identity of environmentalism, because you write, it comes from the root word of environ, which means around, kind of, you know, separate from us. I think back to the, my time, there's a chapter in the book where I describe um the opportunity I had to walk a traditional song line with an Aboriginal tribe in the northwest of Australia um, who had just saved that song line from encroachment by the natural gas industry that were trying to build a plant in its middle. But um, I mentioned that just to say that I think when talking to folks out there uh, with the, in the Gular Blue clan, the, the concept of environmentalism is just like... Yeah, that makes no sense to them, <laughs> you know. Um, it's sort of like saying, "Oh, I'm I subscribe to realityism," you know. 
it's like the environment the environment is such an all-consuming concept as to be and such a thing that is woven through the absolute texture of reality that to um, sequester it in its own concept and then anoint it with an ism is quite strange because it has a distancing effect. Um, and I think, you know, in the West, because of that rupture, suddenly that thing starts to suffer because of all the, all the uh, behaviors that rupture allows. And then we're like, oh, no, we have to save the environment. As if the environment's not us. You know, it's a very weird, it's a very weird thing. And I also associate it with like multiple decades of the environmental movement being mostly about recycled handbags and uh, CFL light bulbs, which I think was um, a very corporate friendly and ultimately unvisionary instantiation of the thing that we're now trying to build in the climate justice movement, which I think is a lot broader. So we define the environment, we separate from the environment, then it's, it's, it's detached from us, and then we realize it's at risk and we need to reconnect with it and understand that we are dependent and, and part of it. Um, you write that fossil fuel is everywhere, though rarely seen. People pump gas into their cars, but they don't see the gas, they smell it. And I thought that was really interesting. Can you say more about that sensory relationship? The infrastructure undergirding the climate crisis is in many ways quite abstract, right? Um, we talk a lot about fossil fuels, but very few people have ever held a lump of coal or seen oil sluicing through a pipeline. The, the infrastructure of that and the very real things that we're digging up from the ground, which are basically the guts of the earth that we are dredging up and pumping through our cars and our buildings, um, all of that's been hidden from us. And so... Um, there's a way in which the whole the ideology of the problem is just incredibly abstract for people, and um, I think that contributes to us having a hard time wrapping our heads around it because both the impacts are abstract in some ways. I mean, in many ways they're very real, but they they have to do with parts per million in the atmosphere and probabilistic assessments of how likely extreme weather events are. They're, they're, they're indirect. It's not like, you know, if I, you know, if someone pulls a trigger on a gun, there's a consequence, a human consequences. Whereas in climate, you drive a gasoline car and someplace, some storm, some bad thing happens in, in a different time and place. There's, there's, again, that disconnect between what we do and the impacts of it. Totally. And I think that's why there's much that is demanded of us through policy change and organizing in these next few decades, a tremendous amount. But I also think there's a, there are many ways in which we have to sort of like update our culturally normative philosophies about what causality is, about who's responsible for who, uh, and about the kinds of things we pay attention to. Um, because it is the climate crisis makes incontrovertibly clear that the level and breadth of interdependence, not only between humans, when you know me pumping gas in my car in Washington, D.C. affects a farmer who's trying to raise a crop from increasingly saline soil in Bangladesh, and not only between humans across time, like my pumping gas into my car right now, or us succeeding or failing in passing the big reconciliation bill that's on a knife's edge in Congress right now, will have material impact in people that live probably five or six generations from now. But also the interdependence with the natural world, you know, um, thinking about if environmentalism is the thing that sees the polar bear on the ice flow and says, that's so sad, we should save that polar bear, when what what's increasingly seems like the right attitude is like, <laughs> we're not separate from that polar bear, that it is the canary in our own coal mine. You know, and that's what indigenous people in inherently know. You write that there was no single eureka moment for you to become an activist; rather, it was slow entrapment. How did that unfold for you, and how did you discover your own responsibility or complicitness? 
Well, I grew up in a sort of unique position with regards to the climate crisis. Um, my father um, is an oceanographic researcher at Rutgers University. Um, he would spend multiple months every year when I was growing up um, on research voyages to the Antarctic, you know, doing very esoteric research about how metal particulates in the ocean affect plankton blooms and, and uh, a lot of other stuff. But also doing doing ice cores that the drilling ice cores reveals the composition of past atmospheres. That's very direct fundamental climate science. Yes, exactly. So he would not describe himself as a climate scientist, but he definitely works with many, and he's adjacent to that field. But he would come back and and um, you know with a little bit of worry in his voice say like that's not the same continent I went to a decade ago, um, and because of the albedo effect and other things, you know the poles are warming much faster than any other place in the on the planet. So Global warming as a concept was introduced to me extremely early in my childhood, and then I had nowhere to go with it. Right. You write, you write that it was difficult for your family to talk about, that your, your dad would say these things, and, and almost like you didn't know where to pick up the thread. because Were you intimidated or feel inadequate compared to him? It was this, I found this part of your book fascinating because I wrestled with that in my own house. Like, how much do I talk about it? Do I withhold? And how much intensity can the other person handle and carry? And so how did you receive that as a, as a young man? I think my father really grappled with those questions, but I also think in the years we're talking about, which is the late 90s, early aughts, like the, the strange thing for me was based on what my father was telling me, I didn't understand why everybody I knew wasn't talking about this all the time. Like it seemed like given what I understood about the magnitude of what he was saying, it just seemed like surreal that it seemed like this little secret between us. I didn't see it referred to basically anywhere else. Socially constructed silence. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think even for my father, like, I think culture creates technologies and avenues of feeling, you know, like, I feel like even in subsequent years, my father and I have been able to talk much more vulnerably and emotionally about what's happening to our planet. And I think in some ways, like the culture has shifted under his feet, such that he now has words and frameworks with which to feel the feelings evoked by the facts that he helped produce, you know? But back in the 90s, it was just like this surreal thing. We didn't know where to take it. I think that was fascinating. So you, you write about your dad as being, it's not that he was this, um, so I often encountered kind of this um, taciturn, introverted scientist who's off in the field. You write about him as a very emotionally available and open person, and yet he was still struggling with what to do with this information he was gathering and how to communicate it to future generations, which is, you know, what this episode of Climate One is wrestling with, how to, whether to have future generations, how to talk to them, what to do with the, the burden of, of this knowledge. Totally. And I think that was a lesson for me in retrospect, that even somebody who knew, knows all the science, even somebody who's incredibly emotion avail emotionally available, and my father and I have a very close relationship, even that person has a hard time getting under the surface of the climate crisis in a way that it feels not this abstract current event hovering over your head, but um, like a personal reality that is going to affect you and your family for the next um, hundreds of years. Um, and I think figuring out how to do that metabolism of this crisis into something you can hold in your hand and examine and actually establish your own relationship with is an incredibly difficult task. And I also think one of the chief ethical and political responsibilities of what it means to live in the Anthropocene, especially as a young person. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with author and climate activist Daniel Shirell. Coming up, Shirell says creating cultural avenues for people to process climate grief and anxiety can help lead to more action and help us feel better. 
which is why it's really important that we like do the work to be able to process what we're going to go through over the next century together in public rather than alone doom scrolling on our Twitter feed. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about processing the emotional intensity of the climate emergency with Daniel Shirell, author of the book Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. Shirell writes about experiencing a delay or disassociation from his feelings about climate collapse. One concept he explores is the difference between knowledge and realization, a distinction that I find fascinating. You know, when you go to a meditation retreat, for instance, they'll kind of give you the knowledge up front. Um, whatever the knowledge may be, everything is impermanent, the self is illusion, is an illusion. Um, they hand you the truths right there on day one. And then you spend literally the rest of your life in a practice that is simply trying to realize the truths whose propositional content you knew from the very beginning. But knowledge is sort of this shallow and kind of binary process. You know the facts or you don't. It's like you switch on a light, light switch realizing is a practice and it takes a long time and i think you know when al gore and you know god bless al gore i I wish i would chop off both arms to have made him president in 2000 i think we'd be in a very different place but this often very western conflation between knowledge and realization was what undergirded an inconvenient truth because he was if he was like if i just show people the graph if i show people the hockey stick and give them the powerpoint and the facts are right and it's persuasive that is equivalent to doing this sort of emotional and philosophical and political work that'll get us out of the situation. And, uh, you know, the past few decades have have shown that clearly that's not the case, that there's another ingredient involved. Yeah, I've been going through that recently because I've known for years, I've studied for 15 years, like, you know, like what's coming, what scientists say is coming, that I had the knowledge, but I've only recently since the wildfires in the West and I've breathed smoke into my body and been depressed on these these days that come to that, that realization point. Um, as, as a white man, you, like me, have not grown up enduring what you call, quote, the violence of structural racism, as you write in the book. You also mentioned that you feel guilty for not being really vulnerable to the direct impacts of burning fossil fuels. How does your privilege inform your work as a writer and activist? I think my relative privilege is the thing that embeds in me a deep responsibility to actually take on this crisis. Because we live in a country and an economy where you know it, it runs on desperation in many ways. Hopefully, our move away from neo, our gradual move away from neoliberalism will lessen that, but there are a lot of people that just have a hard time making ends meet in this country. In a way, it's a privilege to have all the lower rungs of my Maslow's pyramid covered. Don't have to worry about food. Don't have to worry about housing. Don't have to worry about severe sickness or disability. Um, that leaves me with a lot of extra capacity, and you're damn right. I'm going to use that capacity to try to make lives of the privilege that I enjoy, lives of basic dignity um, and at times leisure accessible to everybody. If that's not what I'm using my privilege for, I don't know what it's for. And you write that you're surprised how few people are involved in, in doing that who are comfortable as you are in New York City. All it takes is one large meeting room to accommodate a good portion of the millennials who make a living trying to forestall the apocalypse. How do you handle or think about the apathy among your peers and neighbors? I actually don't, I wouldn't call it apathy. I want to be generous to people here. I think for a lot of people, it's overwhelm. It's in fact, I think, a feeling that is too deep-seated and 
too isolating to even really be talked about. Um, and so people bury it and move on with their lives. Um, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but that's my most generous reading. And I think creating cultural avenues where people can feel safe bringing these feelings to light is actually going to elite to a lead to an increasing outpouring of like people not acting as if they're apathetic and um, hiding their anxiety or their grief behind sort of like lindered walls of feeling, which is why it's really important that we like do the work to be able to process what we're going to go through over the next century together in public rather than alone doom scrolling on our Twitter feed. But I also think that like, you know, ultimately we're never going to get a majority of people active in the climate movement, just like in every important social movement in the history of the world, it's never been more than a handful of percent of the population that's actively involved. Three and a half percent. It's yeah. even been studies have been done about, yeah. yeah that's right. the Erica Chenoweth work. And I think three and a half percent, we can totally get there. Um, I think the people I worry more about, obviously, are the active obstructionists, like the very few corporate executives and the, fo- and the politicians they've purchased, um, who are the only, literally the only people on the planet incentivized to watch the world burn and the power they still wield uh, over our democracy. So I think a lot of people feel guilty about the climate crisis, A, because they've been suckered into this framework that if we just screw in the right light bulbs or if they were just better at recycling, then it'd all be solved. Yeah, yeah. Thanks thanks to the crying Indian and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it was, and it was a very clever move by the fossil fuel industry. It dovetailed with sort of like the Puritan ethic. It dovetailed with our identity as individual consumers under late, late capitalism. And it left them completely off the hook because what actually has to happen is we need to regulate, build the political power to regulate those corporations into the ground because they are sociopathic actors. Um, so on the one hand, I like, if anything, I try to alleviate people of their guilt because I think the fossil fuel industry wants you to feel guilty. They want you to feel horrible about yourself because that bedrock is a very bad bedrock from which to take political action. And in fact, I think most people are decent and I think most people live decently and they're trying to like basically, you know, provide for themselves and their families and have some friends and go on vacation sometimes. And like, that's great. That's what I want too. And that's why I'm engaged in this work so that all of that all of those basic things of what it means to live a fulfilling human life are accessible to everyone through the rest of the century. Daniel Shirell is author of Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. He's a political organizer born in 1990, active in some New York climate uh, legislation. Your group was ultimately successful decarbonizing, helping to decarbonize the New York economy over the next three decades. You know, How did that make you feel and what needs to happen ne- next? Well, on the one field... One hand, I feel proud of that victory. Um, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, as it was ultimately uh, named, is still one of, if not the most aggressive, climate inequity policies uh, uh, passed at the state level in the country. It wasn't just the climate people working on this. In fact, it wasn't just it wasn't the climate people leading on this. It was environmental justice communities. It was community organizations representing low income communities of color. It was labor unions. Um, we actually had to like form alliances with people we hadn't always seen eye to eye with in order to build the political constituency that could actually wield enough power to get a bill of this magnitude passed. And I think there's a real beauty in that sort of coalition building. Um, Our target, the person we were trying to convince to uh, give his imprimatur to this bill was of course a certain New York governor who's now going down on political flames you know, the process of passing this bill was like he resisted and resisted and resisted us for a year and a half. And then when he finally felt the political headwinds were too much, uh, he got in front of the parade and 
caught, you know, gave the bill his own name, which we're like, you know, we're fine. If your ego is going to be the thing that gets us across the finish line, fine. But I've just been, I've been thinking a lot, you know, amid the scandals recently about how that administration governed and how absolutely backward it is and, and um, not up to the challenge of the climate crisis um, because they were essentially a status quo body. Um, and when you push them on something ambitious, you know, I would get calls. I remember one instance getting a call from his chief of staff, Melissa DeRosa. And, you know, these people don't even wait for you to say hello. They just start screaming down the phone at you. You know, the governor's al- already like the leader in the nation on climate change, all this stuff. Um, and just basically trying to use animal fear to like beat you into submission. You know, and I was never really intimidated by those calls, mostly because they seemed so absurd. I was like, this is, this is an adult, <laughs> like absolutely blisteringly screaming at me for trying to do everything I can to actually save civilization from unraveling. Um, and there was a basic uh, resistance to any visionary change in the status quo that we had to build a lot of power in order to overcome. This book is addressed to a future unborn child of yours and follows your struggle to consider whether or not to conceive of a child, which is the theme of this episode of Climate One. The prose is bittersweet, heartfelt, and full of longing. It really resonated with me as a a dad with two young adults. So where do you sit on the idea of having a child at this moment? I think a lot of people ask me that, and I don't, I haven't uh, landed on a firm yes or a firm no after writing this book, um, mostly because this book used that question as a way into thinking about the climate crisis. But um, I didn't feel like I wanted to land on a take at the end. Um, and obviously, also, this won't be a unilateral decision. This will be a decision made with my partner. But um, I think part of my impetus for writing the book was that you know, the deeper I got into thinking about climate, the climate crisis, the more it became clear to me that for a while and sort of without any conscious foresight on my end, I had like gotten to this framework of wanting to be a father, like thinking that that would be a beautiful process and also feeling deeply ambivalent about that prospect given uh, what I knew about the scientific projections. And the more I thought about that, it became clear that, well, I couldn't in good conscience bring a new person against without their consent into this sort of world if I wasn't ready with like a a physical document that I could hand them to start the conversation and hold each other in the conversation about the world that they'd been brought into. And that if I couldn't write that document and have it feel emotionally honest, then I couldn't have a family. Um, So this was both like a preparation and a test for myself writing this book. And it's still quite possible that I won't have children for a variety of reasons. But I think do I think there's a normative answer to this for everybody? Absolutely not. I think I think having children is still, you know, it's one answer to the question, do I think the human project should, should continue? Have you talked to your dad about it? Um, I have talked to my dad about it. And I know that my parents want to be grandparents. And I think that's a very human instinct and one I'm deeply sympathetic to. But I think part of it is also their sort of not uncomplicated, but less complicated position towards this question is, you know, I think they have a hard time fully realizing and internalizing the climate crisis. I mean, I certainly do. And they, all their schemas were set in a world, all their understandings about how, what the world is and how it works were sort of fixed in a period where global warming wasn't anywhere on the map. You know, Exxon knew about it and was systematically suppressing it. But for <laughs> lay people like my parents, you know, their formative years, it wasn't really on the horizon. So I think it's 
it's hard and unsettling for them sometimes to see how much this rocks me, like really rocks me in a way they can't quite access. But to their credit, they, they've come to respect that, I think, and give me space for that in a way that I'm deeply grateful for. And, uh, and that I, you know, I hope can become more common among boomers because other reactions I see more mainstream reactions are just like, Oh, you're overreacting, you snowflake. Or like, don't be afraid. Like your generation's going to solve it. And it's Ooh, like, okay, yeah, thanks yeah. for, thanks for passing the buck, bro. Yeah. Well, as a boomer, uh, I'm grateful for your book and your, and your work. It really resonated with me as a climate professional and as a, as a father struggling with some of these things. Daniel Shrill is author of Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World, a beautiful book. Daniel, thanks for your work and for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Greg. This is great. The decision of whether or not to have biological children can be fraught for those concerned about our climate-disrupted present and future. Last year, Climate One's Ariana Brocious spoke with three people weighing the decision. Irene Machu is a pediatrician and writer in Virginia. I have fallen on the side of having at least one child. I just gave birth to my first child three weeks ago, so I have a newborn at home right now. And it was definitely a years-long decision. Virginie Lemasson is a research fellow at the University College London focused on climate change and environmental degradation. On my side, it's been uh, two years of um, debating, questioning, and we still haven't made a formal decision as to whether having children. And Seb Gould is a high school physics teacher also in the UK. And me and my partner, uh, we've, we've debated for a very, very long time and we've come pretty sod solidly uh, on the side of not having a child based on climate. Ariana Brocious takes it from here. Irene, I was curious if you could explain your thinking about about the climate disruption that we're seeing, maybe how your thinking has changed a little bit and how you ended up arriving at the decision to conceive a child. Sure. So I basically, ever since I was a kid, always imagined myself being a parent. And it was something I just assumed that I would do at some point. And I started to have doubts or questions around that probably in my mid-20s as I became more aware of the climate crisis. And then increasingly even more recently in the past couple of years, I'm currently doing a master's degree in public health. And as part of that, I've taken some courses on climate change and human health, and I've gotten pretty involved in some activism and advocacy with a group of physicians who work on climate issues here locally. So becoming more aware of these issues made the decision feel a little bit more tenuous for me. And I spent a couple of years talking about this with my partner. And ultimately, what I decided was that there are two kind of big concerns in my mind. The first one was the ethical or sort of carbon footprint rationale for having a biological child and wh whether or not I could justify that. Um, and it seemed like a selfish decision to have a child just because I wanted one. And then the other concern that I had, of course, was just the planet's livability and my child's life in the future and whether or not they would have the kind of life I would want them to have. I think realistically, when we look at what's happening with climate change, it is very economically and geographically stratified. And we see the effects of the climate crisis are not um, distributed equally in society. And so I, I think that um, on the first point, for me personally, I think that I have the resources at this point to be able to um, provide my child with a life that I would hope that they would have. And then the other concern that I had is just kind of the emotional impact of seeing our planet die and seeing so much um, 
pollution, loss of species, all of the things that we're living through. And I heard, I can't remember who it was now, but I heard a climate researcher talk about this and um, pointed out that from a psychological standpoint, we are experiencing a lot of climate grief and anxiety because we're comparing what's going on now with what we remember from when we were children. And our children born today will not know anything different. And that's not to say that it's okay, but it's to understand that psychologically, human beings have a set point of happiness in general. And I don't think that there's psychological justification that um, people who continue to be born will be increasingly depressed. Your depression or frustration or mental health impacts will be relative to where you started. I think it's a false equivalency to say that humans have must you know, forestall things like as basic as having a child for climate change when we have large corporations and governments that refuse to regulate. And the real reason we have climate change is because of that. It's not because one person decides to have a child or two children or not. I don't want to interrupt, but I want to let the others respond because all of you have given this so much thought. I wanted to ask Virginie if she can Explain her thinking about it and how it has also changed, because I think some of the the things that you highlighted have factored into her decision as well. Yes, absolutely. I can relate a lot to Irina's uh, questioning and and points. Um, my my doubts are very much uh, related to the work that I do, and for the past. 12 years, I guess, I read every day about the impact of environmental degradation and the impacts that um, fall upon very diverse uh, communities across the world. Um, So obviously, there is an argument that says, because I'm privileged, I live in the UK, I come from Europe, um, I don't have to worry about accessing resources to protect my livelihoods or to protect my families and my children are likely to be protected as well uh, because of being um, raised in this privileged environment. But I find it really difficult to um, see myself in isolation from um, the sort of things that we witness elsewhere. Um, and also the other aspect of this is um, we are all in, impacted by the, the levels of pollution of water, of soils and, and air. and I guess I'm biased because I read this every day, but the, the severity of, of the consequences of that pollution for human health is is dramatic. And we know only a little of it because it's under-documented. And especially for children's development, we only start to um, see the tip of the iceberg, really. And that's extremely um, concerning for me. I am very conscious with the the, res- the more responsibility of bringing a, a child to to life and having to accept the risk that they will face themselves hardship in their lifetime. But this particular hardship of losing someone's close, particularly a parent, is is one that I found really difficult to to reconcile because I feel directly responsible for it, and. It's related to my work because I feel like the risk of me falling ill or my partner falling ill or my children falling ill because of environmental degradation is now rising exponentially. And that's how I find it really difficult to make a rational decision about conceiving a child given this awareness and knowledge about the environmental that we have created and that we are leaving to the next generations. Mm. 
Seb, you had said that some of the reasons you and your partner have thought maybe you won't have children, biological children, has to do with um, some of the inequities between men and women when it comes to childbearing, right? Or child rearing, really. So that that that's one of the issues, actually, that my, my partner leans quite heavily towards now. A, a lot of it is to do with the inequities just globally. So we've we've quite recently come to the conclusion that it's quite a privilege not to have a child and to be able to live a normal life. So, you know, across the world, there's so many people who, through lack of access, uh, so, I mean, if you you look at um, the the South in the US, a lot of anti-abortion laws, uh, economically, it's it's not very viable for for a lot of countries. Um, Having access to the healthcare to the ability to not have a child is is quite a, quite a privilege. So that's one of the reasons why she is um, quite adamant on not having a child. Um, but as well, it's it's to do with you know the fact that um, a lot of the responsibility would fall onto my partner. So um, in in the UK at least, I as a as a man would have about two to three, maybe four weeks worth of paternity leave. And for my partner, it would be about three months full pay maternity leave. So a lot of the responsibility would fall to her. We're financially incentivized to have that sort of quite sexist idea of, uh, or shall I say chauvinistic idea of raising a child where the man is the breadwinner um, and the woman stays at home. Then We're not quite a fan of that. (laughs) After the break, we'll continue this conversation about whether or not to have children in the climate crisis. Coming up, children as a symbol of hope for the future. If 20 years from now, we have gotten off our addiction to fossil fuels and we have created new systems, will I regret not having a child? Yes, I absolutely think that I would. That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking with three people about their journey to decide whether or not to conceive a child amid the unfolding climate crisis. Irene Machu is a pediatrician who recently had her first child. Virginie Lemasson is a climate researcher still debating the matter. And Seb Gould is a physics teacher who has mostly settled on not having biological children. Climate One's Ariana Brocious spoke with them. So I was going to ask all of you, what has been the discussion that you've had with your partner on this? And have you been in agreement? Have you disagreed? Has it been a negotiation between the two of you to arrive at whatever point you've landed at at with this decision? I I can speak to that. So my partner is definitely not as uh, emotionally concerned about this as I am and has been very much on the side of wanting to have children ever as long as I've known him. And we've had many conversations about this. And basically, he's sort of fallen on the side of, yes, it is a selfish decision to have a child. Human beings are fundamentally selfish. And I don't think we can avoid that. And if it weren't having children, there would be other selfish things we would be doing. And on the whole, that life is more worth living than not, which I agree with on on that point. And so bringing a child into the world could be an important source of joy for both us and for that child. And we've both talked about how, you know, having a child could be also an opportunity to help make a difference if we can raise that child with an an awareness of the climate crisis that we didn't have growing up. Um, So 
he's very much in, in favor. I think where we are still debating is the number of children. I feel that it's hard for me to justify more than replacement level fertility, so more than two children. And he really wants three. So we will we'll continue to negotiate that. I think that's a really fantastic idea, honestly. Um, having that, because I, I think a lot of people's main concern about the, the climate crisis and children is that idea of overpopulation, especially with countries in the West where you, you the carbon impact of, you know, people living in America and the UK and Europe are so much higher than uh, other people living all around the world. Um, I think it's quite interesting, Iren, that you, you said that it's you were aware that it was quite a selfish idea because that was one of the first things I said um, to my partner about having a child, that it's quite a selfish idea of thinking, I want to have my child and I want to make its life better than mine as, as a sort of vanity project. And it's, it's something that my, my partner never even thought about because it's, she, she just grew up with the idea of, oh, that's just what you do. I think I've mellowed out a lot more. So I think I, I don't think the idea of having a child isn't as inherently selfish. Um, I think I've got a lot of selfish reasons as well why I don't want to have a child. In this episode, we're also talking with author Daniel Shirell, and he's written a book somewhat addressed to a future child uh, of his that he writes, I realized if I was ever going to start a family, if I was going to bring you into the collapsing world at hand, I'd owe you an honest account of why. So I'm wondering if for, for those of you who are thinking of having children or um, or have, if that's something you've thought about that you would um, sort of need to explain to them your decision to have them. That's part of the issue for me is um, I don't know yet what I would say, especially if they suffer for all sorts of reasons. How do I face myself if they ever blame me for for coming to life and they haven't had a choice? And a lot of people argue, you know, it's a gift to be uh, brought to life and and we should be grateful for it. But it has, there could be so much suffering for which um, we can try and compensate for it, especially if we have uh, privileges. But uh, we can't control everything. And so the, the question and the dilemma I'm facing is that do I accept on behalf of another person to take the risk for them? And I know I will dedicate all my energy and, and heart to, to help them as a responsible parent, but yeah, I can't control everything. And this is why it's so difficult to to make a rational decision. On the emotional side, I'm... I know I want to have children, I always wanted, but on the rational side, I don't know. And I've kind of had the same sort of um, dilemma before that um, Irene raised and also Seb about, you know, the responsibility, the carbon footprint of children. Some people said I was the best um, climate advocate because I didn't have children. And some people say, what, why are you so selfish not to want to have children? How can you deny your parents to become grandparents? So there are all these social sort of injunctions on us, especially on women, which I came to terms with and I don't really feel pressured or it's rather actually it's this, I'm blaming my partner because he's brought this new, um, this um, literature that I wasn't aware of from his philosophy teacher who wrote this piece uh, asking, is it moral to have children? And this 
brought to me so many questions and that never considered before, including the first one I'm battling with is, how do I tell my children who, if they are unhappy, if they're suffering, that I made a conscious choice to bring them up to life because I wanted to have them? Is this valid? Is this good enough? I still don't know. So you've raised this really important question about the sort of rational versus emotional part of this decision and, and how you can struggle when those don't actually meet up. Have the other two of you struggled with that? Absolutely. I actually spent much of my pregnancy writing a long essay, which I will hopefully get out into the world to share eventually about this very issue. That rationally, I think it, for me anyways, it is very clear that having children is probably not a great idea. But I think the maybe the larger force for me in making this decision is intuitive and not rational. And I had a conversation with a friend before I got pregnant and I was sort of outlining these thoughts to her. And she's somebody who's decided not to have children, although not for climate reasons, for other reasons. And she said, you know, maybe there's no answer, right answer to this ethical debate, but maybe just your certainty and your deep feeling that you are meant to mother in this way is enough to answer the question. And then it's about how you do it. There are people who choose not to have children and people who choose to have children. And I think all of us are important in the climate crisis and in all the other crises facing the world. But, you know, one thing that was helpful for me in coming to this decision was thinking about all of the populations of people who have gone through crises that felt world ending in a way. Um, I think about, you know, my ancestors who may have been enslaved and and certainly not every reproductive choice in that system was was really a choice. But there are people who have chosen and who continue to choose to have children under really, really catastrophic conditions. And it, it's a symbol of hope. And so I think for me, um, really following my intuition for a choice this big made more sense than trying to settle a rational or ethical debate, um, because I think that it's it's kind of an impossible question. Yeah, the, the the idea of the rational versus the irrational part of your brain, almost like the lizard part of your brain that wants to reproduce. Like that's the whole reason why we're here, because humans keep on reproducing and we do it well. Um, so it's it's sort of fighting that instinct, really. And yeah, I mean, I'd I'd say for myself and even my partner, I think just yesterday, she just said, "I love the idea of getting pregnant," but then. For for her at least, it's it's thinking about oh, but then it's all the other stuff that comes with with having a child. And uh, when when I think about um, that quote that you gave from the author, I don't think I could ever justify to to a standard that I'd be happy with to any future children that I would have had a, a reason to bring them into this world. I, I don't think I could reasonably justify that and i think that's really the, the the crux of the issue if i don't feel um that i i can do that then i just simply won't from from my perspective i i change every day one day i feel like i'm ready and the next i'm like never no way and it has been the case for two years now and up to the point when we decided to set ourselves a deadline, because there's also the, the time issue that for me is the biggest problem, actually. Um, I actually, I think we are blessed in this generation that people are very cautious not to put too much pressure to us. And, and we are surrounded by very diverse uh, relationships with people who decide not to have children or who, with uh, same-sex couples. or And it's 
wonderful to see that no matter what, we're going to be fine and people will, will respect our decisions. And I know it's not the case in many other societies, but that also means that it changed our own decisions-making process. There was a time, a year and a half, where actually we thought we were not going to have children at all. And now I think it's m- not so certain. And to be to allow ourselves to be hesitant and to be transparent was really helpful, at least for me, um, because it's okay to change our mind as well. Yeah, and I want to jump in here because this is, you know, as evidenced by our discussion, this is a really fraught and difficult decision for a lot of people. It's emotional, it's heavy, um, but there are some 3 million children born every year just in the U.S. alone, and I would be willing to bet a lot of those parents, for whatever reason, are not thinking about these issues, um, at least to the degree that you all have. So, Irene, you've touched on this already, but I mean, how much do you think your decision, your personal decision in this matters in the larger scheme of things? Honestly, probably not much. I think it matters mostly for assuaging my own personal sense of guilt or goodness in the world. I don't think that I I don't think that the carbon impact of one or two children is going to change the tide of the climate crisis, even children in a high income society like the U.S. And so I don't really think that my decision matters that much in, in the larger scheme. And I think one of my bigger concerns that I alluded to at the beginning um, about this whole question is the idea of the carbon footprint, which was created by British Petroleum to put the onus back on individuals and say, we need to watch how much toilet paper we use and how many miles we drive because it's our fault instead of taking responsibility um, for for really contributing to the climate change as big industries. And so I'm more interested, I think, at this point in shifting my energy and my focus to bigger policy issues rather than my own individual decisions, which are really kind of small fish when it comes to the to the actual impact. I don't want to sound pessimistic or anything, but what about living in a world where we, we can't change, you know, how big companies pollute the ocean? And surely the best decision we can make then is to not have to, you know, reproduce people who use these big businesses' services. Uh, that that for me is is one of the things that I feel quite passionately about is yes we should be you know advocating for better policies you know in government to regulate these huge corporations you know to tax them appropriately and to regulate them um but at the end of the day chances are that they're just going to carry on I mean I, I don't want to sound pessimistic but for me that that decision is I've made the choice to not have someone else need to use this stuff i i i don't know for me that's another part of my reasoning there and i i don't know how you feel about that i guess part of me thinks you know i we can't predict the future and while i would also say my nature is probably to be a little more pessimistic as well if 20 years from now we have gotten off our addiction to fossil fuels and we have created new systems. Will I regret not having a child? Yes, I absolutely think that I would. And so that plays a big role in my thinking. But also, you know, I think part of the responsibility that I've now accepted in having a child is trying to divest as much as possible from those systems. And I know that I can't do it 100%, but 
you know, I live within walking distance of our local elementary school and several grocery stores. Um, we've discussed getting solar, investing in solar power so our home can be solar powered. And those are certainly very privileged decisions, at least in the U.S. Not everyone can make those decisions. But I think that if I'm going to have a child in a society like this one, that is part of my responsibility, um, you know, becoming pescatarian is something once I finish breastfeeding and can sort of afford to do that calorically, um, trying to really reduce our, our meat intake. Um, so things like that, I think, are absolutely part of our responsibility. So my child learns how to live in a way that is minimizing that resource usage. Perhaps I can bring a middle ground there. Oh, part of the reason why my, my thinking changes so much it's also because in the last two years, we've witnessed Fridays for Future and the, the rise of the youth movement for climate change. That's been fantastic to witness and to support. And to see all these young people so much more informed than we ever were at their age. So many young girls, you know, taking to the streets to protest for things that they care about and that they can, and, and they don't, they're not scared to protest. This is bringing me a lot of hope, which has also changed my perspective and slightly shifted the attention on my responsibility to actually trusting um, the future generation. Because at some point people were trying to re reassure me saying, because you care, then your children will care. But then I felt it's unfair on them because it's put the responsibility on them. Rather, I try to think more collectively that, that I trust the next generation to care more. And we we cannot change at the moment what's going on at the highest level. And believe me, this is part of my job, trying to influence policy decisions being done at the UNFCCC negotiations, for example. It's so slow and so... Um, Yes, slow that I don't have any hope in that process. Rather, I feel like this more localized or perspective to think about my own community and having this conversation about procreation actually is, is changing little things um, at a local level. It brought me joy and hope actually much more than any other aspect of climate activism um, so far. Virginie, I had a question for you because at the beginning of this conversation, um, you have been the person who's still undecided. What, if anything, that either Seb or Iran has said resonated with you and and has maybe given you something new or different to think about or um, will continue to sort of be part of your, your thinking on this as you go forward? I completely agree with Seb pessimism. I feel the same way, this, this sort of feeling of, um, of frustration and, and um, yeah, it's, it's, and it's really draining um, and it's not a happy place. Um, and I also completely share his partner's um, uh, thinking around um, the imposition of, of society's uh, norms on uh, reproductive roles, for example. And if I knew that my partner had equal paternity leave, that would really change my, my decision, I think. Um, and on the other hand, hearing Irene's just having a baby, it just brings me so much hope. I feel like, actually, this, is, this resonates with my gut. And that's cool. that echoes to this um, emotional feeling that this is probably what I want and that's what I'm going to try probably to to go to because my partner is so indecisive that I feel it, it's almost down to me to really decide. And it it's also related to this question of rights, reproductive rights. As a woman, I feel like I'm in control of my contraception and 
part of it is quite a big responsibility. So hearing someone who's came over these doubts and this dilemma with some some really good uh, reasons, it gives me a lot of hope. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to talk about this really difficult subject, frankly. And thanks for joining us here on Climate One. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) On this Climate One, we've been talking about the difficult decision of whether or not to have children in the climate crisis. Here's a note about the big picture before we end. Global fertility rates are falling. In the United States, the birth rate has been declining for several years, and in 2019, before COVID, hit the lowest rate in 32 years. A 2018 New York Times poll on the issue cited top reasons as the high cost of childcare, desire for leisure time, and financial uncertainty. A third of young adults identified climate change among reasons for having fewer than their ideal number of kids. The issues are complicated, but Iren, Seb, and Virginie have a lot of company. Special thanks to Stanford researcher Britt Ray for her help with this week's episode. Find a link to her thoughtful blog about parenting and climate in the show notes on our website. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, depressing, difficult, but it's also critical to address the climate emergency and take action. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review, or better yet, tell a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our audio editors and producers are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.